is Charm like the Bitcoin of carbon removal technologies? We're like nascent right now, but it's gonna explode. I hope that's the case, I do. Um, <laughs> I hope that it's something that excites people so much and that we get a lot of traction for it and we're able to scale all of our technologies alongside it so that we can keep up the momentum. Whether you know it or not, we are all climate conscious. Thoughts like, wow, it's humid outside, or I love the mountains, are examples of climate consciousness. It might take just 30 seconds of your year or three hours of your every day, but we all think about the climate. In our episode with Ren, we discuss nature-based methods for removing carbon from the atmosphere. Carbon removal technologies take this one step further by combining plants' natural ability to remove carbon with engineering methods to accelerate the natural pace of that carbon removal from the atmosphere. On today's show, I'm interviewing the co-founder and CTO of a carbon removal technology company. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm on a journey to bring the world closer to net zero emissions. Today on The Net Zero Life, I'm joined by Kelly Herring, the CTO and co-founder of Charm Industrial. Charm is a venture-backed startup in San Francisco with a mission to reverse climate change and return the atmosphere to its natural levels of carbon. First, they convert waste biomass into a carbon-containing fluid called bio-oil. Then they inject the bio-oil into permanent underground storage wells for carbon removal, or reform the bio-oil to produce green hydrogen for fuels and industrial chemicals. Lastly, they can also use it to produce syngas for green steel production. Before we jump into what all that means, I want to define net zero emissions. Simply put, it's when the level of carbon in the atmosphere doesn't change because of the things I am doing. As an example, if I continue to fly and emit carbon, but I own a plot of land with super plants that absorb the equivalent amount of carbon, I'm net zero. The overused but still appropriate metaphor is a bathtub without a plug. We reach net zero when the amount of water flowing in from the tap is equivalent to the amount of water flowing out of the drain. We'll get more into this throughout the show, but what's important to understand is that our current rate of emissions is 51 billion tons a year, and the water flowing out is way less. That's why we need technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere, and we need them fast. Kelly and I are both engineers, and we couldn't help but get a little nerdy throughout the show. The following concepts come up during the interview and are good climate facts to understand. We reference 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The Paris Agreement uses pre-industrial average temperature as a baseline because prior to the Industrial Revolution, our carbon emissions were basically zero. Now, they're 51 billion tons a year. The hope is that if we can limit the average temperature increase to just 1.5 degrees Celsius, 2.7 degrees in Fahrenheit, we can reduce the worst impacts of climate change. The IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is a group of super smart scientists who are advising the UN on all things climate change. Kelly explains what biomass is, but just to provide some context, you can think of it as leftover plants, like the grass clippings after you cut your lawn. Permanence is a hotly debated topic in the climate space. Essentially, if you plant a tree and it sucks up carbon from the atmosphere, but 30 years later you cut down the tree, the carbon goes back, and the emissions reductions aren't permanent. If you turn the tree into a liquid and bury it underground, the emissions the tree captured are gone forever. In other words, permanent. Two more quick things. Kelly and I did this interview prior to the administration change on January 20th. And as always, 
everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. Kelly, welcome to the show. Uh, We've got so much to talk about. I'm really excited. But before we get started, I want to know, what's your carbon vice? What's something you do that you know is not great for the world, but you're not ready to give it up? Oh, man. Um, Probably plane flights and travel and whatnot. I think that has such a huge carbon impact, but I definitely don't see myself like not going on a plane to travel and see the world and so on and so forth. So yeah, trying to offset that as much as possible, but that's definitely my advice. That's great. We did an episode with Zero Avia who um, are building a hydrogen electric. uh, It's not like you already know them. Uh, And so they need some clean hydrogen. So hopefully you guys will be the the supplier of that as well. Awesome. So if you don't mind, can you introduce yourself, your full name and your title? Sure. Um, I'm Kelly Herring and I'm the CTO and co-founder at Charm Industrial. Awesome. So Charm Industrial, what a name. Can you give us a little bit of the history on that and any funny anecdotes that's come along the way since you guys uh, have started? Yeah, definitely. So um, initially Charm Industrial was kind of um, an, an idea where we wanted to visualize what um how someone can visualize like a ton of carbon in some way. And like a a lot of our friends and I like to do um, like big interactive art and so on and so forth. So it was like, how can we make climate change like very visible to the public? And one of the thoughts was to make uh, char into, or like carbon from uh, pyrolysis into bricks that could then build a, a temple to climate change. And you can really visualize like tons of carbon. And so charm initially was to make char and there we were going to make uh, char farms, so to speak. So char farm and makes charm. It never really took off as that, but um, we like the name and nonetheless. Got it. All right. That makes so much sense. And I, I do love that. And so Per your LinkedIn, uh, I think it's fair to say you're a rocket scientist turned uh, turned into founder. Have you always been interested in climate? Um, what is it like being a rocket scientist? Uh, and do you get to apply any of those principles into Charm? Oh, totally. Um, so I should say that I've I've always been interested in social impact. Um, that was something that I kind of carried through all of my like high school and college and and career generally. So a lot of the companies I've worked for has like been tied to some sort of like mission driven organization. Um, in terms of rocket scientists, it's super cool. Like space is awesome. Um, it was great to be able to like get into space in my career and work on satellites and rockets. And um, at my last company, we actually got to build a small rocket in, in a year, which is just like pretty unheard of using mostly off the shelf components and so on and so forth. But in terms of like the application of that in at Charm, yes, we can, we use it all the time. Um, if you think of engineering, it's really like a set of constraints And uh, as you go into different companies and different fields, you get a different set of constraints. And um, when I was working on satellites, there was like definitely a size constraint that I bring into my current job as we try to build like small modular units. There's um, when I was working on the rocket, we were working on like cryogenic systems, which is like extreme cold, but then other parts that were in extreme heat environments. And charm is very much uh, like, focused on different problems in engineering that is in extreme heat environments up to like 600 to a thousand degrees Celsius. So I get to apply a lot of those kinds of constraints into my work. It's awesome. And I, and I think it's kind of ironic, right? Cause uh, as, as far as I know, and I could be very wrong, um, which we'll find often, but 
rocketry is kind of the least inefficient in terms of moving things from place to place, right? And now you're like going on the opposite approach. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Did I haven't really thought about though. I know. I think, well, so the, when I worked on the rockets, it was really, um, part of the mission there was to try to make space more accessible for small satellites and making that kind of like small satellite um, industry be able to have, yeah, be able to access space more easily and um, have cheaper rides to space and so on and so forth. But yes, I definitely see the inefficiencies there now that you bring it up. That's all good. So um, really excited to get into charm. But before we get there, we like to talk about what the first principles of the industry are. So what would you say are the things that um, someone who's just getting into BEX, bioenergy, cap- carbon capture and storage needs to understand or other fields to be able to understand charm and what we're going to talk about today? In, in what aspect, I guess? So charm it is, falls into the net negative emissions technology. Is that true? Uh, yes, we could be considered that for sure. Okay. What, what, what would you, where would you place charm in terms of like the world of like climate innovation? Yeah. So I think we we're both carbon removal or, or yeah, negative emissions technologies. Um, and then we border on BEX. Okay. And BEX is what? Yeah. So BEX is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And the concept really comes from the fact that plants are one of the the best selectors from carbon di- for carbon dioxide um, coming out of the atmosphere. So it's a great way that we can remove carbon um, from the atmosphere naturally. And then we can take those biomass um, and maybe that's grass or um, agricultural waste or any type of plant that essentially we can use in our process. Um, we can take that and use a number of conversion technologies to extract the carbon from the plant. Um, and then from there, we want to, so that, that's the carbon capture part of it. And then from there, we want to essentially store it in a permanent way. And so some people do conversion processes where like, they'll take that plant, they'll heat it up um, in order to extract the carbon in that way so that they can get it in the form of a gas or a liquid. And then they can, in our case, sequester it underground in a liquid form or sequester it underground um, by pumping the, the gaseous CO2 underground. And those are kind of the, t- the two ways right now that um, BEX is done. But basically, it's this combination of, of plants, some amount of, of chemistry and conversion of the plants into a carbon form, and then uh, pushing it deep underground in order to store it permanently. And which plant is the LeBron James of carbon capture? Which plant? Oh, uh, like which like is... sugar cane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like... So there's a couple different plants. Um, there's these like, you want a plant that has a lot of, um, that grow- basically you want to optimize for yield when you think about plants. So you want something that has the highest yield that is not going to ideally take away from your food source. Um, and restrict the amount of land use that you have. Because that's that's the major problem with BEX is that people are worried that if BEX takes off, you could essentially um, outrun your food sources or basically use all of the land to produce energy, um, which can be really problematic. So you want to optimize your yield. There's a number of grasses that do this, um, that have really high yields, and you can just grow grasses six feet, 16 feet tall um, and like grow them again. You just cut them off and they just like continue to grow. Um, and then there's just the other option of instead of using something purpose-grown, um, you'll actually use something that is just a waste right now, which is what we're trying to do initially. Um, so taking the almond shells instead of using them as bedding or something like that, um, where they'll eventually decompose, we'll use them as 
bedding for animals, that is. Um, we'll use them as uh, ways to convert it into carbon in, in a liquid form. And then are you competing with synthetic aviation fuel producers as well or any other kind of synthetic fuels for this waste? Um, it's tricky. Bio oil is in some ways considered uh, an option for a sustainable fuel, um, but it's just never really taken off. It has a really high water content and a really high oxygen content, which is bad for fuels. Um, and it actually polymerizes um, over time. So it, it basically breaks down and just creates like this plasticky, like hard solid if you kind of sit it for too long. So we aren't, we aren't like directly trying to make aviation fuels with bio oil, although there are people working on the upgrading of the fuel to like reduce the water and reduce the oxygen. Um, and I think I don't I don't like to think of competition in the climate space so much because it's like everything we're going to need everything every every bit counts so yeah um I'm hopeful that aviation fuels also take off or sustainable aviation fuels that I that is but sustainable so sustainable aviation fuels use a different form of um like bio growth or maybe I'm not understanding yeah do buy do they do they even use I, I i think they do but i'm not sure yeah so you can like create fuels from from like corn ethanol like those types of things the corn ethanols of the world or um there's different processes that essentially convert the the biomass into these types of fuels Got it. and so then do you do you talk with um like in the negative emissions technology are you also speaking with direct air capture companies do you guys have this like secret facebook group where you talk all about how you're going to save the world um, there's a couple different communities I'm a part of um, that include a ton of different people in the climate space. Um, one of them is My Climate Journey, which he also has a podcast, which I love. Um, and then there's Air Miners, which is another group that um, we got connected through after we got the Stripe contract. Um, and so a, a bunch of people basically working on mining the air of CO2, which is, I've always loved that name too. And so like, where does this play in terms of like saving the world uh, and help us getting to our, our 2% or 1.5 um, degrees, not percent, but degrees below uh, in pre-industrial levels? Yeah. So um, per the IPCC kind of like plan for us to reduce emissions and, and stay below those temperature uh, set points, BEX plays a pretty big role Um I think it's absolutely required in, in some of their models as well. I'm not sure of the exact percentage that is required, but I want to say it's like above 30% is has to be devoted to BEX. And so how does, how does Charm perform its, its BEX removal or how do, what's, what's the like basic understanding of the Charm technology? Yeah. So um, it's kind of two ways. Do you mind if I get into like, what charm does and like the process of that it, it might make more yeah. sense then okay yeah 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 let's do it totally okay cool so um the way the charm works is that we use waste biomass and through a process called uh fast pyrolysis produce um this product of bio oil or fast pyrolysis bio oil and so that bio oil can be used in two ways and and this is where the negative emissions technologies and becks kind of diverge here so um one way that we're working on right now which is our like new novel sequestration method is to take that bio oil and to um put it underground into like deep um injection wells or, or salt caverns essentially and that is basically allowing the carbon dioxide to come out of uh the atmosphere via plants and then basically condensing all that carbon into the oil and then putting it underground where no CO2 can escape or no carbon can escape. 
And then the other half of the company is basically working on um, the utilization of, of bio oil to create like value added components. And so there might be, we will take the bio oil and we'll gasify it, gasify it to produce green hydrogen. And then we'll sell that green hydrogen either um, through fuel cell cars or like the clean uh, hydrogen airplanes or refineries, anyone who's using hydrogen in their processes. And then another aspect of it is we can gasify it to produce syngas, which is basically the step before you clean it up to make hydrogen. And then it can be used in uh, for direct iron reduction in like to, in green steel production, essentially. And so um, that's that's the BEX aspect, that like gasification plant, where then we will take the CO2 emitted from that plant and hopefully also sequester that underground. Got it. And so why not just put the biomass underground in the first place? Why, like, why do you have to turn into bio oil? Yeah, so... Uh, when you think about sequestration, you really have to think about um, the permanence of the carbon that's that's being sequestered. So one of the things that have been really exciting for people is the concept of regenerative farming, where they can actually take char and take the solids and mix it with the soil or put it underground in some way to provide nutrients to the soil. Um, and that's also something that, that we are, we're excited about and we're passionate about. But a lot of studies have had trouble measuring the permanence of that. And so you can't tell whether or not the carbon is actually being re-emitted. And so people are less excited about um, that as a like negative or negative emissions or carbon removal technology. Um, but people are working on ways to um, basically measure that carbon and measure the like impact on the soil and tracking the carbon from for its lifetime to see if we can go beyond that like 10,000 year requirement for permanence. Um, there's also the concept of like, well, can you put it even for like, can you put the solids and, and the biomass even further underground? And the other aspect of that is the decomposition of the biomass. Um, if it basically is able to be consumed by any like microbes and so on, um, those microbes will emit the CO2 either, or either as a CO2 or methane. And so um, basically you don't want to uh, allow it to re-escape in that way. And then permanence would not be maintained. Got it. And so if we like take our engineering hats off and we go into like our, our five-year-old hats, um, like how does it work? Like what happens, what is the biomass what happens to it? Um, why can't it just stay as grass or sugarcane or, or whatever it is? I don't want to guess. Uh, yeah. So um, we take the biomass. And so that's like, yeah, grass, sugarcane, almond shells, any waste. Corn stover is another one that um, comes off of cornfields when they take off the, take off the grain. Um, they basically take that. We chop it up into something really fine. So it's more of like that powdery, um, like sawdust type of size then we um then we dry it and then that reduces all of the water so you don't have excess water in your system um so you'll dry it to like less than five percent moisture or so on so on and so forth um then you put it into a reactor where you're essentially um starving the biomass of oxygen so you're heating it up in the absence of any oxygen which allows it to um produce this pyrolysis gas instead of catching on fire and combusting essentially. So um, when you heat it up and it lets go of all these vapors, all those vapors can be then condensed, basically brought back to a liquid when, when it's cooled. Um, and that produces the, the pyrolysis bio oil. What would have happened to the sugar cane or, or corn? What was it? Corn? I, I'm hearing corn starch, stover. but I don't think it was. Corn stover. What, yeah. what happens to that if, if charm doesn't exist? 
Um, so it's used in a couple of different ways. A lot of the times they'll like burn it for heat. That might be one of the, the ways. Um, it'll just be incinerated to get rid of it. Um, or it'll like be left on the field for decomposition, essentially. And in the first two cases, when it's burned, does the carbon mm-hmm. get emitted to the, uh, to the atmosphere? Yeah, so that is actually a carbon neutral process um, when you take in plants and then you just burn them because all the carbon dioxide that they consumed to grow is then just re-emitted to the atmosphere. Um, so that's why when we take our carbon and we sequester it underground, we're essentially removing that carbon from the atmosphere. Got it. And what about when it's reused as fertilizer? What happens to the carbon in that scenario? So that's the one that's a little bit less straightforward. Um, They think that some of the carbon can be emitted um, basically like through the decomposition of of the char or um, basically uptake from different processes that uh, like might different reactions that might happen in the soil might emit CO2. so that, that's why they're trying to measure whether or not the carbon like remains in the soil or if it's used in other ways. Got it. And, and we've really gone into the weeds here. So I kind of want to stay on this topic and then we'll, we'll yeah, step sure. back a little bit. But um, on your website, you guys talk about life cycle analysis. Uh, for someone who's never heard of life cycle analysis, what is that and, and why is it important to charm? Yeah. So whenever you have a carbon uh, removal technology um, or any real climate technology, you want to think about what your entire life cycle of your process or plant or product um, would basically endure in order to like measure the carbon along the way. So if that might start as for our process specifically, it might start as like, okay, we have the corn stover off of the farm. Um, what then it goes into our process, what CO2 does our process emit um, versus like intake of CO2 versus like sequestered amount of CO2. Um, The life cycle analyses are interesting because they can start at different points based on what things like already exist in the world. So there's different conversations about like how much we take in the like farmers emissions when we think about like the waste biomass. For our life cycle analysis, if, for example, the biomass would have otherwise just sat on the farm and decomposed or um, or it might be incinerated, for example, we won't consider like the, the harvesting of the biomass for other purposes because ours is waste as our part of our life cycle analysis. But other people might if they are like thinking about the life cycle analysis of their product that comes from farming. Um, so it's really a way to like make sure that we're accounting for all of the carbon along the way. Got it. And so what like what part of the life cycle then most worries you or what part's the most carbon intensive? Um, well, I think with any real chemical process, you want to think about your process specifically and its efficiency, like its carbon efficiency. Um, so we want to emit like the least amount of CO2 and like uses like basically take all that carbon and put it in the most useful spot as possible. Um, so that's the part that really um, is important to me as an engineer. However, when you think about the grand logistics of everything, there's a lot of carbon that gets used in the transport of the biomass or of the bio oil even. And so when we, that tends to be one of the biggest hits for us is the transport of anything in our process. Got it. Which just like leads me to like one of my favorite questions, which is like, what do you need solved in order for charm to succeed, whether that's like your own technology or across like the full spectrum? What do we need solved? Um, Yeah. So one of the things that we're trying to do right now is um, create a bio oil supply that um, is cost effective and is 
um, I guess, small and modular and easy to deploy across many farms. So what we want to do is actually take the pyrolysis plant and put it on the site of the farm. And so that'll reduce all of our transport costs of biomass um, and a huge carbon hit in that way. And so when we um, want to put it on the farm, there's certain limitations. Like you don't necessarily want to set up a chemical plant on the farm. You want to set up like something that's really easy to use, that um, is easy to transport. So you maybe want to like go just plop it down on a farm during harvest, for example, as opposed to like have it sit there all year round when maybe it won't be useful during certain parts of the year. And so we're kind of really thinking about how to develop and build chemical plants slightly differently that they've been done in the past. So instead of de designing really big chemical plants where we have to truck in all this biomass to one spot, we want to think about putting it on the site of the the farm and, and what that looks like. And that's kind of, it's not a problem so much as it's like an interesting challenge, how we can sh reshape our thinking to build something unique in that way. And so are the farms that you're working with, like kind of like a mom and pop farm that I have in like my childhood memory, or are these like the like ever infamous Monsanto farms, none of the above? Um, so we actually work through some partners to, to go on these farms so that they have special like harvest contracts with them, for example. Um, they, they vary. So when we're doing some of our demos, it's more useful for us to go maybe on a farm who's a little bit more lenient, more flexible to kind of trying something new as opposed to trying to make a big contract with a large farm. But there's definitely um, a sweet spot once we get into production mode of the size of the farm. Um, we have not been in contact with any Monsanto so so for the record That's good. <laughs> and, and and like are the farmers pumped there are, are like tons of people coming to them uh with opportunities like this it varies some farmers are quite risk averse um they want to kind of be the third person you come to after like the first two really worked um and then some farmers are a little bit more on the r d side we actually have um worked with a farm called like an R&D farm for example so they'll do like little test plots of different types of new new product and new uh new plants but yeah i think there are a few that are interested in they've heard a lot about regenerative farming and putting the the soil carbon in the soil so um We've seen some uptake from that where they want maybe we do produce a little bit of bio biochar as a part of our process, although it's not really used in our process right now. Um, and so they're interested in potentially having that as an offtake as well, um, in addition to being able to put their waste biomass somewhere and use it for something useful. Got it. And so I saw online, correct me if I'm wrong, but that right now you guys sold 416 tons uh, of of carbon removal to Stripe at $600 a ton, mm -hmm. but that your goal is $45 a ton. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like what goes into the price today? How are you gonna get it down to 45? What's, is like $600 the actual cost of it? Um, right now it's, yeah, there, it, it's quite high up there mainly because there's, it's a first of a kind product. Um, we need to essentially build up all the infrastructure around it. And so there's like investments into, and that's why it's like such a high price. And that's why a lot of people think about this negative emissions technology as kind of more of an investment in the future, as opposed to like immediately right now, although we are immediately reducing the, um, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere right now. Um, I think the price initially goes into um, the bio oil itself and the production of the bio oil. And then the transport cost is a huge portion of it. Um, then there's also an injection cost as well. 
And are you guys already pumping bio oil into like underground wells today? Uh, we have not done our first demo yet, um, but we're kind of very close to our first injection, which we're hoping to get to this year. Okay, awesome. And so then when does the removal happen? Is the removal happen when you turn it into the bio oil or when it's put underground? When do you get like check the box and said, hey, you know, we've reduced the carbon in the atmosphere? Yeah. So, I mean, the removal really happens with the plants, but um, once the plants <laughs> yeah, then are able to to convert that into something um, physical that then we can uh, pyrolyze, which is the process uh, verb that we'll use, um, and then condense that back into the bio oil. Uh, that's just using, that's basically just a, a conversion process. And then once we take that bio oil and pump it underground and it's like in the deep layers of the earth, that's when we can really call it totally removed and uh, essentially sequestered. Got it. And so the reason to do this, is it fair to say that it's it's uh, like regenerative for trees? Like ideally we would just plant trees everywhere, but we can't do that because we don't want to like affect the changes in the land now. But so what we can do is like, take this waste and then put it somewhere where we have the existing space. Is that kind of the idea? Um, yeah, I would say that it's like the metaphor is most closely to like reverse oil drilling. It's like there were fossils and plants that are in deep layers of the earth that have produced the oil that we use today. And we are basically taking that from the known biosphere that we live in and putting it back underground where the oil was originally. And so you mentioned that it's kind of like a, uh, a long-term investment. Would you say that is it a long shot investment or like what likelihood uh, does, does either charm or the industry have to succeed in, in greatly reducing the impact? Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily like a long shot investment. Um, it's more of, can we come down that cost curve as much as we need to, to make it really accessible for people? And then can we secure enough biomass at the right price um, and set up our infrastructure at the right, like, on the right terms in order to make it a really efficient process that can like sustain a business essentially. So I don't know that it's like the technology isn't a long shot. The technology is, is pretty sound. Um, it's just about making it happen at this point. Do you guys work with oil companies or would you, do you view them as like good guys or good people, bad people, D none of the above? Yeah, that's tricky. We do. Um, we have been talking with a couple different oil companies right now, thinking about hydrogen going forward because we do need to kind of um, reach those larger refineries that might be owned by a Chevron or a Shell or so on and so forth um, in order to expand the um, uptake of a green hydrogen solution. And so, I think there are definitely parts of these companies that are, are thinking in the right ways of trying to change things around and, and looking for new technologies to help them do that. And I think part of the, the way that we really get um, uptake within the community or not just community, but like within capitalism at large is by like making them a part of the solution, unfortunately, <laughs> as much as like the damage that they've done to the environment has been problematic. Um, so, I'm hopeful that we can try to turn around some of their processes and, and be supportive in those ways. In case you're feeling like Bex and what Charm does is hard to comprehend, you are not alone. I have a background in engineering, including a course on sustainability, and this was a tough topic for me. After a climate science heavy first half of the interview, I wanted to learn what it's like to be Kelly, the founder and CTO of a company, and how she thinks about sustainability in other ways besides her work at Charm.
since you brought up capitalism, uh, Charm, <laughs> as far as I know, is a for-profit company. How much of what you do, both as a founder and maybe like I, I'm curious more for you than I am for Charm in general, how much of what you do is to like be a founder of like incredibly impressive tech company and ho- you know hopefully succeed financially in that versus uh, you know be a climate advocate, affect climate change, uh, and prevent it, and act as um, you know really in in a way that everyone needs to today. Yeah, I mean, I think I I wear both of those hats. Um... And I don't believe that they have to be mutually exclusive either. Um, I think one of the things that Charm wanted to do was show that we can um, remove carbon from the atmosphere profitably, because I think that's how we're going to get people to be excited about clean energy and climate technologies is by showing them that like business can still function. It's not just, it doesn't have to be a nonprofit or some sort of activist group in order to remove carbon from the atmosphere. It needs, it can like be a part of the the world that we currently live in. Um, but yeah, I think the, that job is one and the same. I definitely try to um, take the the climate activist part of me into each part of the things that I do at work um, and still try to push forward the technology um, as trying to like benefit the company and, and help the company succeed because I think we need more companies who are trying to do good, do good um, in the world. And I'm hopeful that we can be one of them and increase our impact both in a uh basically in a in a socially impactful and positive way was there something that uh, like happened in your life where these two things coalesced together you're like i want to be a founder and i want to like save the world Hmm. Uh, my parents were both entrepreneurs um so i was I've always been kind of in that world where my dad and mom ran a startup and um they were specifically work and travel And, uh, so I think there was that part of it. Um, I also just knew that I wanted to help the world and I was always, um, inspired by those who did. So whenever I go into the different roles that I've been able to at different companies, um, I've definitely had that lens of like, how can we, how can we help the planet? How can we do better and leave it like better than the way that we found it? Do you ever think about like the irony of like inventing through tech, the way to save the world is, is another invention uh, versus like a a nature-based solution, which, you know, Bex and maybe Charm is one and the same. Yeah. um, Yeah. There's that argument between kind of like, if we create technologies, does that change the way that we, uh, I guess, address the climate problem? Um, I definitely think we're going to need both. Um, And, but I do believe that like, necessity drives innovation and drives invention. Um, our sequestration pathway actually came out of that. Like we were sitting uh, at our homes during COVID and just, we weren't able to work on our like hydrogen plant and our hydrogen hardware. Um, so we started kind of working through other aspects of the company, readdressing some of our assumptions and our economics. Um, and it was that when a casual conversation just came up about like, could we do it this way instead of that way? Um, and that really like set off a whole new aspect of things. So I do believe that different situations can, um, I guess, inspire those types of technologies to come about. Yeah, I'm totally a believer in like constraints, breed, ingenuity. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So since you mentioned it, how did Charm come to be in terms of uh, both like your ideology uh, and your method of uh, inventing? Yeah, so some of our other co-founders were working on a, like basically 
deep research while I was at the rocket company, um, deep research into what the climate solutions were today, um, which of them had the best economics and could be profitable as a business, um, and maybe weren't like, were ripe for innovation. So they weren't necessarily been like done most efficiently right now. Um, and they really came about the production of hydrogen as, an, as a market that we like could achievably try to tackle as the, the first like pathway into reducing overall CO2 uh, concentration in the atmosphere and thought that that like size of the market and the economics for like selling cost competitive green hydrogen um, seemed like the right way to go. So we started down that path. And then since then, I've just kind of, as new things have come up and as every time we look at that LCA and we look at the economics and we address whether or not we think that it's a good path forward or a new industry. And so um, that's how we kind of got into the negative emission space um, or the carbon removal space, as well as looking at uh, steel production as another opportunity. That's awesome. Has that been something that you got to take part of and something that like, and like as an engineer, uh, I imagine like, or, or I don't want to guess, like what is the most exciting part of your day uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, is it the engineering? Is it fundraising, startup, all like anything? Yeah, I think it's twofold. Um, the running a company is, is always been something that has fascinated me. And I love uh, like building a team that is uh, aligned on like, so many different things and is able to accelerate and push forward new technologies and in exciting ways. I also just think that like the way that I've done engineering in the past and had the opportunity to do engineering in the past has been kind of taking these industries that are traditionally a little bit slower and kind of reinventing them and um, rethinking the way that they do engineering. So the space industry is, is one of those that we in, the way that it's traditionally been done, like NASA, it might take years and years for a satellite that is the size of a school bus to be put on a, a rocket and, and put into space. And there's so much work that goes into that, so much different, like, to be honest, like bureaucracy and like checks and all sorts of things, which is useful in a lot of ways. But if you have opportunities to scale that down, to make the size of your satellite, the size of a shoebox, which is what we did, and then... Um, think about like, well, does, do each of these components need to be space rated? Can we think about them as more temporary? And like, if we can refresh our constellation, we'll always have new tech up there instead of just having a school bus sized satellite built 20 years ago with old tech, just like sitting in the sky. And the, you need that for different uh, applications. So I shouldn't say that uh, that's not the way to go in some scenarios, but for us, it was like, how can we create something entirely different and do it quickly um, and kind of change the way that you think about that. And so I've taken that into all my other future jobs, like at the rocket company, when we've built a rocket in a year or at charm where we're kind of rethinking chemical plants, it's doing that iterative work every day and like always having a new challenge and having that be very um, like dynamic. And uh, I guess, just like an exciting path as we try to navigate the best the best way to do engineering and the best way to save the the planet what about the worst moments mm. oh man i think it's like when you are testing and you have like a problem that you've you've recognized and you're trying to solve this problem and the way that we do it is like iterative right so sometimes that can be really exciting because like a really quick solution that you came up with in a day just works and like 
you have all of your intuition and your engineering knowledge has like helped you make that really quick. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work and you can end up iterating on something like time and time again and testing it. It's just not working. And it's just, you can just feel the morale hit when like the like sixth solution that you've tried on a given problem is just not working. But I also do think that that's a great opportunity to like step back and readdress the situation entirely. Ask yourself, like, what have you been blind to while you were sitting there banging your head against this problem? And oftentimes that's, that's when, like, really exciting solutions come about. Yeah, right. I think you actually, I, I don't know if you're the one who wrote it, but you guys have a blog post on that, uh, on that exact experience. Was that you who? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't think I've written any of the blog posts thus far. Um, it's been a somewhat of a team effort, but um, I think maybe you've there's there's been two of them actually of like really difficult uh engineering problems we've hit along the way yeah that's awesome and so so stripe is one client of yours uh, huge brand name recognition who are other clients or like will, will ever like consumers um like myself be able to purchase them directly through charm yeah so um our other client right now is shopify um so they've they've committed another, I believe 600 tons to that. And we might do some like future work with them as well. Um, and then we have a couple other clients I'm not allowed to speak about yet, but, um, we are trying to reach many people who are excited about voluntarily, um, removing carbon from the atmosphere through different like tech, uh, endeavors and sustainability programs within their companies. So in terms of direct-to-consumer, I think we are definitely considering that model. Because of the high price point of our um, carbon sequestration right now, it's not necessarily directly targeted to consumers. Um, we hope to eventually make that more accessible. But people have considered it. We've gotten a couple like inbound requests from people who kind of want to add it to their portfolio. Um, they could buy trees and do direct offsets that way or, or invest in wind and solar. But um, some people are like, oh, well, I'll put like a portion of this towards some of the larger um, investments and kind of um, bigger opportunities potentially to get to gigatons and hopefully like help them along the way too, which I think has been really helpful for us. Yeah. I think there's a few different interesting ways of looking at this, but one of which is like, do you prefer the term carbon offset or carbon removal? Um, I think we prefer like negative emissions and carbon removal. Um I, I think that's just semantics though. Yeah, no, but I think it'll be interesting it's like, to see like, just like, um, like I hope most people have uh, the privilege to have like a 401k portfolio or, or some sort of like um, financial means of retiring, right? And you've got like your stocks and your bonds uh, and and whatever else like CFAs, certified financialists can, or planners can tell you what to put in. But it'll be interesting to see if we have in the future, it's the same thing for just each person. Uh, and in our first call, we spoke about this a little bit, um, but the responsibility of the consumer versus the corporation, which is so interesting and, and like I'm happy to get into as well. I, I for now, have a, like a strong uh, belief in the like responsibility of the consumer as like like the consumer's always right, right the customer's always right and like governments represent the people and so if i'm if i want a portfolio and, and then this is like the other metaphor it's like similar to effective altruism which uh, for people who don't know is just like this idea which i'm not the expert um but the idea of like doing the most bang for your buck in terms of charity uh like I don't think that applies to carbon, uh, carbon removal or, or negative emission technology because like we have this like much long future range uh, of need, right? And so 
it would be awesome if, if in my carbon offset or carbon removal portfolio, I can have like, kind of like, I, I don't know, is it, um, is charm like the Bitcoin of, uh, of carbon removal technologies where like, we're like nascent right now, but it's going to explode soon. Oh, I'm, I hope that's the case. I do. Um, <laughs> I hope that it's something that excites people so much and that we get a lot of traction for it and we're able to scale all of our technologies alongside it so that we can keep up the momentum. Um, we are not sure what the negative emissions market size is. It's a really hard thing to size right now, especially because there's only been a few large companies kind of taking on the charge of trying to remove um, carbon in large sizes. And you do need the... It's this tricky thing in chemical plant development. Um, a lot of people call it like project finance and it's driven by having these like long-term offtakes essentially. So you need long-term offtakes from your biomass supplier to make sure that you can have enough biomass to produce um, what your chemical plant can possibly produce. And then you need an offtake for your product. And so by these large companies coming in and helping us um, by essentially providing offtakes for our product, we're able to scale our infrastructure and like raise funding on that essentially. And so right now it's kind of unclear how long that offtake will be um, and how large that the scale of that offtake will be. And that's another reason why we're not abandoning any sort of like uh, hydrogen product that we might have or green steel product. It's like, we do believe that this is really exciting right now and we'd love to see it grow. But we also believe that like we need to tackle some clean energy and, and green hydrogen solutions as well to like maintain other aspects of um, the whole, I guess, solution to the problem. Um, I do hope that people can add these sorts of things to their portfolios. I, I too am an investor and would love to like see where there's unique opportunities for socially responsible investing aside from like your typical like ETFs or finding the right types of stocks to buy um, on the market. It's definitely a tricky field to navigate right now, but uh, luckily we have seen some people like trying to navigate it as either in like a corporate way where you can like sign up for being guided by these advisors who might be able to select these things for you um, or you donations in certain ways or and doing your own offsetting. And so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get to a scenario where we can kind of allow for people to buy it off of our website in a way to like give back and, and offset their own things, but also invest in kind of a future technology. What would you say Charm's brand is now versus like what it will look like in five years from now? Hmm, brand. I'm hopeful that it'll actually remain as like, we're trying to remove CO2 from the atmosphere and, and reduce it to pre-industrial air levels. Like I hope we never leave that, that like big, big picture concept of like, these are the solutions right now and we're constantly looking for new ones. So I guess I'm hoping that it doesn't change too much, but it would be super awesome to be one of the largest carbon removals operators um, in the world. That would be really awesome. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Uh, I love that, uh, that ambition. I've had an awesome time. I've learned so much uh, and I'm really thankful. I've got just a, a few more quick questions. Your favorite climate journalist or news source? Um, yeah, so one of my favorite podcasts is uh, How to Save a Planet, and I do follow Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson on Twitter and kind of all the things she, different, she posts on there. Uh, so she's probably one of my favorites. Have you had a chance to meet her? No, that would be awesome. <laughs> like you so should. Uh, you guys are two inspiring, uh, awesome people working to fight the climate crisis. So are there any um, uh, women-focused groups that you're a part of, like women engineering groups uh, or women in, uh, in climate 
Um, each of these communities tend to have like a smaller subset of them, which are women in climate. Um, so I'm a part of those in that way, um, but not a separate one yet. Is there anything um, that you want to share in terms of like being uh, a female in engineering or a woman in engineering or, or a woman and founder, any, any struggles that you've gone through that you wish like you had known beforehand or that you could share with other people out there? Oh man. So I went to a, a, an all girls school for high school. And so I went into college and I didn't even know that like women weren't in engineering. Like that was not like on my radar. Um, so I think that's what helped me just kind of like push through some of that initial like feeling of being like one of the women in the room, very few women in the room. Um, and yeah, I would just encourage women to get into STEM. There's, um, so much that you can provide um, as a different perspective, even if you're taught the exact same things, just having that different perspective and that diversity in your room is so important. Um, and I know at Charm, we're really intentionally trying to make sure that our workforce is very diverse and inclusive. Um, so there's plenty of jobs for you here at Charm. And uh, we're really excited about getting more women in climate and more women in the engineering field generally. What would you say uh, to people interested in working at Charm? Um, I would say that it's a really wonderful team and we have some really hard problems that uh, we are tackling and some really big plans. So, uh, I would say that it's one of the best, best places I've worked so far, but perhaps I'm biased <laughs> and, uh, I would encourage anyone and everyone to check out our open positions and to consider joining our team. Awesome. And I'll, I'll plus one that and say that uh, on your your careers page, you have this amazing paragraph uh, about what it's like to work at Charm in the environment. And um, I, I'm jealous. It sounds like a great place to work. Uh, oh, thank you. We worked so hard on those. So I'm really happy that people are finding it resonates yeah. with them. No, that's great. It's honestly so funny because I was just looking at uh, Amazon's first job posting, which is just like a very different is from 1995 so also like i think really? D wow. dei was like diversity equity and inclusion was a little bit of a different game back then uh so it is fascinating but it is like so so different uh, and just sounds like a great team and you guys are working on something incredibly important how should people get in touch either with you personally or charm yeah um my email is just kelly at charmindustrial.com so you can feel free to reach out that way okay thank you so much kelly have a great rest of your day thank you Thanks again to Kelly for joining us today. You can find her on LinkedIn or reach out via email at kelly at charmindustrial.com. Some final thoughts on the show. I will never reduce my emissions by living an unintentional life. So my options are A, shrink my footprint, and B, enable carbon removal through the purchase of offsets. That's why Charm's work interests me. I'm hoping there's a future where I can purchase offsets created by Kelly's company, or own a plot of land that uses Charm's technology to suck carbon out of the air into plants, turn those plants and their captured carbon into oil, and pump that oil right back into the earth to stay for a very, very, very long time. Would you be willing to eliminate your footprint by purchasing carbon removal credits from Charm Industrial? You can join the conversation about net zero living on our weekly Clubhouse office hours by following at the Net Zero Life. Net Zero Life office hours on Clubhouse are Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern. 
You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at the net zero life or by emailing Nathan at the net zero life.com. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, original music composed by Climb On Band. Thanks for listening. Next week, I interview a co-founder from Seattle who's working to help businesses reduce their emissions and save money just by changing the way they think about light bulbs. Lucky for us, we could take those same concepts and reduce our energy consumption right now. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.